Father, we are grateful for this wonderful day. We thank you for the beauty of it, the sunshine, the um, warmer temperatures, and we uh, are grateful for a break in the weather. We thank you, um, especially now, too, that Greg's procedure was uh, seemed to have worked out properly, and uh, we pray that you be with him as he recovers and, uh, and is restored fully to health. And we pray you'd be with us tonight as we um, conclude this portion of the book, the wonderful survey we've had of uh, your uh, work in applying Christ's redemptive work to us uh, in this age, and both understanding how that work is going on and what part the different institutions play. And with respect to these extraordinarily important institutions tonight, uh, we pray that uh, your word would enlighten our lives and we would learn better how to live unto Christ, uh, not only as individuals, but in, as a community of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight we take up uh, the family, the world, and the state. Um, we, um, but I want to give you a chance, if anything, with respect to last week, missions, uh, missions spiritual gifts, and marriage, if you had any follow-up questions since then that you'd like to raise uh, before we d- dive into tonight's topic. Anything? I don't see any uh, hands. So, um, the um, we'll start then in on the family. Uh, recall that when we talked about marriage last week, uh, we looked at the Westminster uh Confession of Faith, chapter 24, section 2. And there we saw, based on the scriptures, the divines had identified the purpose of marriage and uh, in their paragraph distinguished it into four parts. Uh, One, mutual help of husband and wife to the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, that is, uh, bringing children into the world, and of the church with the holy seed, that is, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and uh, for sexual chastity. And I urge that, in fact, there is a fifth element uh, in marriage, um, and that is for the government and development of creation. Um, And that's where that fifth element Dr. Packer uh, picks up on tonight in this discussion of the family, uh, part of this creation ordinance. It was given uh, to men and women, not as sinners, but as creatures created in the image of God for his glory and for their good. Uh, we noted that, in fact, God preserved the institution uh, in a wonderful way by his grace, even after the fall, and made it instrumental in the history of redemption. Uh, that because uh, faithful men and women would marry and bear children, Uh, Even in a fallen world where there was so much pain and trouble uh, associated with it, it made possible, finally, for the seed of the woman uh, to crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. So, uh, we take up then uh, this part of the creation ordinance. You remember that uh, from, from creation, there was the calling to work and develop the creation, and there was the calling... Uh, of government. There was an order established uh, before sin had ever entered into the world. We're going to have an opportunity to think about that a little bit. So, um, family is in question. Uh, The the family uh, often in the Bible is thought of as a household, and so it can include uh, beyond parents and children, Um, but that's the most uh, basic element of it, parents and their children. And um, Dr. Packer urges it is the oldest and uh, the most basic of human institutions. Um, uh, I might want to put in there quickly, it's not just a human institution. Uh, it's a divine institution for humans. Uh, it's uh, one of the most wonderful parts of the way that God has created and ordered the world. And here it's worth noting uh, the implication of this, and that is that relationships in community, 
is as basic to our humanity as our individuality. There's never a time where we aren't in relationship. We're born into relationships with other human beings. We grow up and are nurtured in that context. Then we ourselves become, uh, Lord uh, blessing, um, uh, part of carrying that on. So it, it sometimes there's a tension between uh, the group and individualism, uh, uh, one or the other thought to be the most important. And here we notice they are simultaneously um, uh, absolutely fundamental to our humanity. And uh, Dr. Packer s- says we ought to think of the family as a spiritual unit and a uh, training ground uh, for maturing in uh, um, our physical, mental, and spiritual um, abilities. With, with that, then, he, he first speaks of the family as a government, um, an authority structure, he says, uh, uh, built in, whereby the husband is the leader to the wife and the parents together are leaders to the children. Um, he wants to point out straight away that this leadership is always in the scripture considered a form of service. Uh, he says form of ministry, but that's the idea of ministry there. It's a, it's a service to others and not simply self-oriented for the expression of my own good and my own will. Um, these uh, leadership roles are fulfilled in love, he urges, and gives us the three great passages in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3 uh, that lay out this understanding. And it's striking to note here the consistency of the apostolic Witness. There's not a hair's breadth difference between Paul and what he says and Peter and what he says, and both bring forward the, the beauty of this relationship that God has appointed and its governmental structure as a good gift from God. Um, Dr. Packer draws our attention to the fourth and fifth commandments, um, the responsibility of the head of the household with respect to the whole household um, keeping the Sabbath, responsibility of children to um, honor father and mother. I think we noticed when we looked at the Ten Commandments that uh, the Fifth Commandment is especially striking in that culture. It would have been no uh, surprise to hear that the father ought to be honored, uh, but it would be alien to that culture in general to have the father and mother together to be honored by the children. Um, The... um, And he brings forward the the example of Jesus himself throughout his life, honoring his parents uh, um, and being quite sharp with those who would uh, try to avoid responsibility to their parents. And even as he was dying in agony, uh, his own concern for his mother's care and willingness to see to that. Um, Dr. Packer urges that this is uh, um, a... uh, community of teaching and learning about God and what it means to love and serve God. Uh, It's always been important in the covenant community that the family was the focal point of the instruction of children in the ways of God, in the way of living unto God. And the passages there on 233 are wonderful to read over. And I hope if you haven't already, you'll take the opportunity to read the passages from Genesis 18, Deuteronomy 4, 6, and 11. Um, And in Ephesians 6, um, it's much briefer, but nevertheless, uh, the uh, very interesting element with respect to this training in the family, and that is to say uh, that uh, the fourth verse insists, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, And I think uh, that's particularly noteworthy, that fathers especially are identified as those who should take the leadership in the religious training of their children. In modern evangelicalism, in many ways, that's almost reversed itself. Uh, and that, that the mother is the chief religious instructor of the children in the household. And often men have nothing to do with it at all. But this is a serious mistake. And I think, and we'll, we'll see that, of course, women aren't excluded from this. 
Um, but the point is that typically in the household, uh, the husband is the chief disciplinarian. And I think uh, that there's a connection there between discipline, which you've seen in Dr. Packer's view and certainly in the scripture's view, includes corporal punishment. That uh, since the father is often the chief um, applier of corporal punishment, uh, his role as a teacher with respect to discipline is absolutely crucially joined to the idea so that he has an obligation to be raising uh, the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and for them to understand the chastisement is a part of them learning to love and honor the Lord. Um, and uh, the, uh, in, in other words, the father is showing them, look, if you don't like discipline, don't, don't be mad at me. I just work here. This is what God appointed for us, and uh, he intends it for your good and not for your ill. And that changes the nature of corporal punishment altogether, if that's the attitude with respect to uh, its application. Um, uh, There to be instructed, we've noted the role of the father. Um, Dr. Packer gives us a nice... uh, uh, definition of or, or description of discipline on 233 first uh, paragraph where he says that it is directive and corrective training directive and corrective training in other words it's positively giving instructions as to how a thing ought to go and on the other hand it is correcting when uh, things don't go the way they should and this uh, is, uh, has the goal of leading uh, beyond the folly that's wrapped up in the heart of a child uh, to a place of self-controlled wisdom. That is, it's an application of government for the sake of self-government. The goal of the parents' government is that they have self-governed children um, who Uh, will not need to remain under government once their childish time has come to an end. Now the passages there, again, I hope you'll look at from Proverbs 13, 19, 22, 23, and 29. Quite striking. Um, And they uh, emphasize corporal punishment um, and um, in the context of love, 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Uh, 22.15, folly is bound up in the heart of the child, as I just mentioned. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Um, the, uh, and 23.13, another very interesting one. Don't withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So uh, this is profoundly countercultural in our day, um, and it's increasingly so in some parts of the world. Um, uh, civil uh, society has turned so much against it that it's virtually outlawed. Uh, but this is absolute folly and destructive with respect to children. Um, the um, and God Himself is. Uh, uh, made the exemplar of this in um, Hebrews 12. Uh, A father who loves his son disciplines. Uh, A a son without discipline, in fact, is a son uh, that's not loved. Finally, uh, for Dr. Packer, he wants to urge that um, the family is meant to be a spiritual unit. Families as families served the Lord, participated in uh, different rites of worship in both Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, They are regularly the fundamental unit of the life of the congregation, as you see in the sections uh, cited from Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, so crucial uh, was um, the life, the government, the training of the family, that for a person to be a candidate for church office, they had to have shown themselves 
proficient at that work before they could even be considered. Um, and the passage in um, um, First Timothy is especially interesting, 3-4. He must manage his own household well, that is the elder. He must manage his own household well, keeping all, in all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he be able to care uh, for the church of God? Um, a, a, a striking prerequisite for usefulness further in the life of the church. Um, the I want to add just one section here. I don't think... Dr. Packer would object if I ever had a chance to ask him about it. He might even think that this should have been said at this point. And and that is um, another crucial element of this government and discipline, or excuse me, the the government and development of the earth, of course, is work. And work is given in the context of family. It, it, it isn't that Adam has a profession and Eve has a profession. They, they have to work in the world for each of their sake to care for one another. In other words, crucial to the family is that the family is to make a provision for one another uh, for this worldly needs and cares. And this is uh, uh, so foundational that when Paul talks about it in Timothy, uh, at five, 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, If anyone doesn't provide for his own household, he has denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. Now, now that's quite remarkable. Pa- Paul is saying that this is so fundamental to uprightness that even a person professing faith, baptized, uh, perhaps admired for their uh, religious life otherwise, uh, that if they failed to care for their own household, this is such a failure of moral sensibility that it means you're, you're, not only are you not a believer, you're worse than an unbeliever. Because m- most unbelievers get this minimum element of uh, the duty to care for others. Uh so, um, and not only uh, members of your own household, uh, but this is a provision for others through the calling of hospitality in the family. Uh, we're to, in part, do our work so that we might have something to share with others, Ephesians 4.28. And the beautiful passages on hospitality all focus Around the fr- uh, under the framework of family life, um, so I would say that's a, 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 uh, an additional element that ought to be brought up about family. Um, uh, not only a, place, a community of teaching and learning, not only a government structure, not only a spiritual unit, but uh, the, the uh, way in which um, family members make provision for one another and provision for others through hospitality. Well, let me stop there and see if you have any questions about anything that we've said concerning the family. Or comment, or miscellaneous. Dave, this is Steve. I just have a, a brief comment. You, you had mentioned the fact that, uh, uh, you know, in our culture, well, in many places in our culture that, the, you know, the father kind of abandons uh, abandons the family and is left up to the mother to do all the, the teaching. I, I found that to be largely true when I've been down to South America, that the, uh, the churches there are most, I won't say all the churches, but most of the churches are populated with women and children and very few men. Oh, my. So, uh, you know, you, you've got a couple of male leaders, but, uh, but a lot of women come without their husbands uh, and they bring their kids and, and, and you, you just don't see the, the men being as active and participating as much in the life of the church. Mm. Mm. Well, that, uh, that's certainly a recipe for disaster, but we can pray that uh, <clears throat> the Lord would awaken 
those men. And I, I'm afraid sometimes it's because the ministry of the word doesn't make that point as forcefully as the word itself does. But um, in any case, yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Steve. Any other thoughts or questions or concerns about the family? Last time you talked a bit about spirituality of the church, a clear distinction between mission of the state, mission of the church. Um, with the family and the church, there's obviously a lot of overlap, but do you think there's some areas where they get mixed up too much? And how would you walk that or approach that? Um, the... Uh... I think the best thinking on this subject sees both uh, um, principally and historically that the family is the foundation of both the church and the state. And it's out of the family that the bifurcation comes uh, in a way that's needful and appropriate, but in the family, in seminal form, they're both there. Um, clearly, the idea of government grows out of the family. Um, and and you, you remember when we talked about the Fifth Commandment, if it's right to understand that as the seminal statement of all ordination and subordination uh, governmental structures uh, morally. Um, the, but, um, the, and it's clear that there would have been uh, certain things uh, in a more primitive state that uh, would have necessarily been united in the fa- family. Um, uh, and But as um, civilization grows, they are bifurcated and the family, uh, as it were, delegates that to um, uh, either church or state. So, for example... Um, the need to protect from, uh, uh, in a fallen world, the need to have protection from criminals or from those who would do harm, that obligation would have belonged to the family in a more primitive state. You'd have had to defend yourself and protect yourself. But with the growth of civilization and families of families, then that allows for the delegation of that to um, the state. Uh, so too with respect to uh, the um, uh, the discipline of the church uh, in a more primitive state. Um, the church is virtually the family, then you get a family of families. But as things develop then, there's a need for the government of the family of families and a delegation to that government of uh, more formal discipline. Does that make sense, Austin? Yeah, I think so. I, I thought, I guess, about um, kind of the American frontier and that, you know, they're moving out. There is no church. So I guess in that type of situation, and there's also no state, really. So right. they're probably functioning, yeah, largely both. The father is protecting the family, but also instructing in religious matters, maybe more than if there was a local church for them to participate in. Right, right. Okay. Or will, I don't know which. Uh, actually, this question's from Kathy. She doesn't have sound on her device. Oh, all right. Here it is. Given the verses on corporal punishment, would it be sinful to discipline kids in a different way? Uh, uh, the, the, the question has, uh, it seems to me, a premise that I don't agree with. So let me try and speak to that first. I don't think um, uh, these texts say that the only kind of punishment is corporal punishment. I think that, in fact, there's a great panoply of uh, instruments, tools at hand uh, for parents in the overall disciplining or training of their children. and uh, so I, I think every parent ought to have a multitude of um, ways of addressing issues in the life of the home, whether 
positively in terms of the training or negatively in terms of the correction when something's gone wrong. I do think it would be sinful to never use corporal punishment. Mm. I think God intends that uh, corporal punishment is, uh, in the early years, one of the most important ways that a child learns. And I could try and say more about that, but and I don't want to go too much further, but I will will say this. Um, The I, I think that uh, the understanding of authority and meaning to words is tied to the enforcement of those, wor- of those words on the child uh, when they're young. So that no isn't just a sound in the air, but no, when it's... Uh, not complied with has a corporal reinforcement that um, brings the reality of it home to the child. And the point is, um, the uh, what corporal punishment is is bringing a very strict, controlled measure of discomfort against disobedience to make a point symbolically so that the child never has to face the real misery that will almost certainly follow a life of disobedience. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I think the wisdom of Proverbs is so important here in all of these texts. Um, And uh, I, I think myself that is foolish um, for parents not to pay attention to that and the testimony of uh, the ages since then. But Proverbs in particular um, is very pointed, it's, uh, but it's very careful to show that the whole context of the thing is to be done in love um, so that after the child's punished, they're not banished uh, from family fellowship, but they're embraced and encouraged to learn from the punishment. Um, the um, Well, does that, can you tell from where Kathy yes. is, or do, do you think that? That's, that's great. Thank you, Dave. All right. Any uh, other thoughts on this one? Dave, just real quickly, the, I just wanted to, to say that, you know, as we, um, as our kids get older and, um have to become adults and make their own decisions in life. One of the things I routinely find myself grateful for is that, um, at least in our case, our kids were raised in a context where they week in, week out saw families of believers attempting to live out the Christian faith. Mm. And they saw that in their friends' lives and the parents of their friends. And that week in, week out, um, it, it seems to me it just creates a, 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 a mental framework that, that thank the Lord, will, will, will have an influence on them. Yes. I'm just very grateful mm. for that. Wonderful point, Paul. Anything else on the family? All right, let's press on um, to the world. Christians are in society to serve and to transform it. This is 234. Um, And uh, Dr. Packer in this uh, makes some distinctions that are absolutely crucial. And for failure to grasp them, uh, Christians have gone wrong badly uh, and diminished their usefulness in the world and their witness to Christ. So let's make sure we're clear on the distinction. In the Bible, the word world, he starts with talking about the New Testament, sometimes means nothing more than what the Old Testament meant by uh, the earth, the, the creation. 
And world in that sense is uh, good in every sense of the uh, concept. Um, On the other hand, the New Testament usually uses the word world to refer to the fallen order of sin and disobedience and um, evil and opposition to God. So that when the world is criticized in the New Testament, it's not as the good natural order that God created, but it's as the fallen, confused, darkened order uh, that um, is uh, is in opposition to God. He notes that those in a few places those senses seem to blend. But the crucial thing is that the Christian needs to simultaneously embrace the world as good, an order created by God and designed by God for our good, and at the same time see the world as it is now under the um, government of satanic forces and... um, as something to uh, not love in any sense of the word. And that's the striking language I wanted to point you to in John, uh, in First uh, John chapter 2, this language, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world Desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, and whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now the point is you simply cannot understand that text without the distinction that Dr. Packer has just made. Uh, Paul says, those who deny the world, meaning the good things in the world, it's doctrines of demons. They're profoundly misled. Um, Things that are made by God good and to be uh, enjoyed and that we're to be thankful for. So the point is, 1 John is using it in the second way. Uh, But if you took the word world in that first sentence, do not love the world or the things in the world, to mean every part of the created order itself, um, that would be a counsel to disobey God and to dishonor God. Do you get everybody with me on that point, the distinction in these uh, two ways in which the world is used? Anybody want to question or comment? Or All right. Well, so this uh, this sets the stage then for the possibility of what Paul says in Romans, that we're to be in the world but not of the world. Uh, Christ sent his disciples into the world uh, and uh, to uh, be witnesses to Christ and be part of the building of the church. But they're to do that without uh, taking up the world's ways, materialism, godlessness, uh, uh, the pursuit. Um, Here's the last line on that page. It's wonderful. And Dr. Bagger's alliteration, prideful pursuit of pleasure, profit, and position to the exclusion of everything else. Um, It's that that we need to repudiate entirely. It's that which we, it is that which we love not at all. Um, And this is uh, crucially a a part of... uh, 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 the distinction is found in the heart, in the motivation, in the way in which you um, embrace the world and refuse to embrace the world. Um, so on the one hand, on 235, uh, first full paragraph, Dr. Packer wants to say that we are to be uh, folk who feel with worldlings in the sense that we understand their fears, the, the, uh, the, the kinds of needs they have, in order to communicate and uh, in order to, to care. But we do that without 
uh, joining in the desperate hold onto the world and the things of this world, since we know that this world is passing and that we're on our way to a home with God. And uh, we're, we're pilgrims in this world. That's what he means by it's never uh, that uh, we, we have a motivational detachment from this world in, in a way that the one who is suffering in this world apart from Christ doesn't have it at all. They have, a, in fact, a, 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 a motivational uh, tsunami with respect to the world. Um, so, uh, on the one hand, sometimes Christians have wanted to say we need to withdraw from the world altogether, meaning uh, human relationships, human institutions, uh, the monastic uh, option that sometimes uh, that be, being offered again today, uh, the um, or to become completely consumed in the world um, and utterly absorbed uh, by everything that is passing as if it's lasting. Uh, the Titus 2.12 passage is quite powerful in this. Uh, what grace does is trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Um, so, uh, Dr. Packer argues that God's first requirement for believers then is that they be different from those around them, both in what they do and what they don't do. Uh, they follow God's ways, um, and they turn away from the ways of the world and irresponsible self-indulgence. Uh, he calls it a clean break with the world's value system and lifestyles uh, uh, in order to practice Christ-likeness um, in the way that we're called to. Uh, I think this phrase finds its uh, home in the works of Tim Keller, but uh, wherever it came from, I think it, this is a powerful way of phrasing it, that the church is to be a counterculture for the common good. There'd be a counterculture that is a culture that is completely opposed to the ways of the world, but it's for the sake of the world. It's for the sake of the common good that the Christian church is distinct like that. Well, uh, he uh, notes a threefold task that the Christian has in this world. Uh, one, to bear witness to Christ. Two, to show neighbor love. And three, what he calls the cultural mandate. Uh, that is what we've been talking about, the uh, development and government of the world. Um, Dr. Packer argues that men and women were made to be managers of God's world and that this is a stewardship we have from him that's part of our calling, uh, not only as sons and daughters of Adam, but also part of our calling in Christ. And this takes labor uh, with an eye towards the honor of God and the good of other people. And he calls this the real Protestant work ethic. Um, the, uh, and he concludes this section by talking about uh, God's providential care for everyone uh, in the world. Um, this forbearance of God that uh, he causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the crops to grow um, in that uh, beautiful section in Acts 14, 16, and 17. Um, and thus, uh, Christians have a vocation, a calling, to be involved in all kinds of human activities. Um, from the point of view of our own value system and vision of life, and because we're involved in the world in that way, we can be both salt and light in the world. Uh, a preservative, uh, a, uh, a way to help people see a better way um, in the, into a fully human community. Um, and thus, uh, he says, 
because Christians live that way, they can be a transforming cultural force. And I think that's certainly part of the story of the West. Um, But let me pause there and see if uh, there are questions or comments that you have about the world. Not seeing any. Um, the uh, perhaps the last thing I, I, I want to say is that um, the the so-called cultural mandate um, is a work that belongs to this age. That itself isn't a part of the kingdom because it. It belongs only to this age. And um, that doesn't mean that it isn't important or crucial. Um, but it me- also means that it's not the same thing as the building of Christ's kingdom through calling sinners unto Christ and seeing them transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to be Christ-like themselves. Um Hey, could I do just this is a big question and you don't have to answer it very big. Um, what do you um, can you comment on Max Weber's book on the Protestant work ethic? Um, the uh, I think elements of it are fundamentally sound. Um, the. Um, uh, I, I just don't think they entirely get the motivation right. Um, but uh, the, the fundamental idea is that uh, especially Reformed Protestantism had the notion that uh, they were loved and chosen by God in Christ had the idea of vocation that they were called to serve God um, in this world in all kinds of things beside churchly activities. That's Luther's, the cobbler and the uh, making shoes is as holy in his work as the priest giving a sermon. So they, they feel... They, they think they're chosen by God, that is, that God's going to have a special care for them. They have a sense of calling to serve God in the world in all of the aspects of culture. Um, and that that is understood then to be a, a religious calling, part of their religious calling. And they have the hope and expectation that as they are faithful in it, God will bless them in it. And um, that dynamic uh, informed a good bit of uh, the development of um, uh, the the economic system in uh, both Great Britain and Scotland. And, uh, you know, the chief moralists that uh, are behind what's called the early capitalist documents are English and Scottish and uh, that carries over into the United States. So I, uh, but I think it goes wrong in a number of ways as well. Uh, in, in, for nothing else other than it, it, he has them th- thinking that because they're doing so good, they're blessed by God, as opposed to they're doing so good being a uh, blessing of God itself. In other words, um, it's God who blesses to enable them to live well unto him. It's not their living well unto him that enables God to bless them. Thanks. That's very helpful. Thanks. All right. Um, anyone else on uh, the world? Well, let's press on then to the state. 237. Uh, I can't believe this is the conclusion of uh, part three of the book. We start part four next week. Um, 
the Christian must respect civil government. So Dr. Packer has a discussion of the state. Um, we know well that the Bible um, uh, only addresses this question by implication. It doesn't lay out a, a framework for any kind of uh, civil government. Uh, and there have been various kinds and various experiments and so on. But he wants to insist that civil government is ordained by God. Uh, and he doesn't bring out uh, perhaps as much as he should, but it's ordained by God through the created nature of men and women and his providential ordering of things. In other words, it's not itself immediately ordained by God, but the conditions under which it develops uh, are, are ordained by God, and he guides over them providentially. He says it's for the ruling over of communities. I would uh, think that a slightly better way might be uh, putting it is ordained for the ordering of communities. And I hope you'll see as we go along why I think that's a better choice. Um, the um, and it's he wants to say that there are all kinds of governments. There's not just civil government. There's a government in the church. There's a government in the home. There's governments in schools. It could have gone on and on. And in fact, I think maybe this is the place to bring it up. Um, well, Dr. Packer on page 237 at the bottom, notes in particular uh, that um, government stands against anarchy, the law of the jungle, the dissolution of ordered society. And it sounds as if he might be saying that the only reason why there's government is because there's sin in the world. But, but remember, we've argued already that uh, government order uh, in the world is antecedent to the fall. The calling to develop and govern the earth belonged to Adam and Eve in the in the garden. And um, the uh, and I th think you can see this as soon as you recognize that even if there were no lawbreakers, even if there weren't people who wanted to say might is right. Uh, or who wanted to be utterly antinomian and have no rule to have to follow, government would be necessary for all, all of those sinful conditions. But in any company of people, variously gifted, finite, rational creatures, where there's coordinate action necessary, such ordering structures are needed. It belongs to us qua our humanity, not only qua sinfulness. So that, that's the point. In any company of variously gifted and finite creatures, where there has to be coordinate action among those creatures, some kind of governmental order structure is needed. And, uh, God's preserving of that order in a fallen world is absolutely crucial to that uh, world. But that's not its only uh, significance. In fact, it's antecedent to it. It is, uh, as Dr. Packer notes, um, an expression of what's been called common grace. I prefer the term, uh, the phrase common goodness myself. Uh, thinking that the term grace is better reserved for redemptive elements. Um, and I think that's largely the way the Bible uses the word. Uh, but in any case, um, as you can see from Dr. Packer's parenthetical, he's essentially saying that, that when he has in quotes common grace and then following on that kindly providence, kindness is his goodness, and so it would be his goodness over uh, everyone in common. And uh, it's a very powerful and wonderful idea that God would be so uh, 
self-restrained and forbearing uh, with a sinful world. Let me stop there for a minute and see if anybody has a comment or question about that. In other words, to put it this way, for those who serve in government at, at whatever level, whether uh, in the protection of our common life, in uh, giving direction to it, and um, that they're not involved in a necessary evil. They're involved in a fundamental good, a good that we variously gifted finite creatures uh, need. Um, and uh, it's a, a, a high privilege. I, you may remember it in one of the presentations I gave, I noted um, Calvin's observation that to serve in civil government uh, is one of the highest and holiest callings uh, that a person can have. You'd have a hard time persuading people of that today, I think, but uh, it just shows you we've run on hard times. Well, um, the... uh, Dr. Packer um, notes the fundamental texts of Scripture from Peter and Paul, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Again, a beautiful unanimity among the apostles on this very important question. Uh, and that's summarized accurately, um, he believes, in the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 23 and sections 1 and 3. And so you have that God has ordained civil magistrates to be under him and over the people for his own glory for the pub- and the public good. And thus he's armed them with the sword for the defense and encouragement of those who are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Uh, and the, the, yet the civil magistrate isn't over the church. Uh, he doesn't uh, administer the word and sacrament or the power of the, keys, uh, the kingdom there separate spheres. Um, the, um, um, so, the emphasis here in particular is on the use of, the lawful use of force. And uh, Christians are to acknowledge that as a part of the order that God made. But at the same time, uh, civil government is under God. It isn't a law unto itself. And the Christian is to testify to uh, God's purposes with respect to it and be part of holding civil governors accountable for what they do. Uh, Not to persecute uh, their citizens or to allow for uh, their own administrations to become a form of evil. Uh, The the next paragraph down, uh, Dr. Packer acknowledges the propriety of uh, taxes being collected for the service that the government renders. Uh, this, again, among some conservatives, would be a kind of heresy. Ta- taxes are, I'm sure, thought of as being from the pit of hell, but um, God thinks it's entirely appropriate and says that we are to pay our cha- taxes cheerfully. Uh, doesn't mean we're to allow for highway robbery, but it does mean we ought to be grateful for the good that we get from government and be happy to help support it. Um, uh, But on the other hand, as I say, government itself is under God. And so um, if uh, it forbids what God requires or requires what God forbids, then uh, you uh, cannot obey. You cannot comply with such um, uh, uh, commands. And he notes that uh, though you may have to disobey, you also uh, have to accept that governmental order nonetheless and uh, suffer the punishment for so doing. Um, And he cites the wonderful example of the apostles with respect to the government of the church in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. It's interesting in particular that in Acts chapter 4, their appeal... Um, is to not to the law of God, not to um, the uh, a- any element of um, Christ's um, 
particular instructions, but it's an appeal to common sense, and it's quite remarkable. Um, Notice uh, in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, the uh, apostles are brought out and uh, from their night in prison, and uh, they're brought to the council, and the high priest questions them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in the, this name, yet here you are, here you have filled Jerusalem, you're teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And, oh no, I'm sorry, I looked in the wrong, wrong text. It's, four, it's chapter 4. Uh, here they're brought in for the first time, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Do you see how powerful that is? They're saying, look, do you forget the framework here? You yourself are under God. And so you can't possibly command us to do something that we know God has said you you must keep us from doing something. And, and, you think about that, and you tell me what conclusion follows other than that. Um, so it's a very powerful point. Kate, or Will, um, are you wanting to get a word? I don't want to interrupt. I just had a question earlier on. Yeah, go ahead. Go. Um, since government is as humans, does that mean that there'll be government of some sort in heaven? Um, there appear to be orders of angels. We don't know very much about it at all, but there seem to be. Um, and um, it may be that, uh, well, I don't want to go too far afield here, but government is natural in the world based on gifts. So, um, in, in any group that gets together, uh, if, uh, suppose you want to have a, a, a pottery club and you all want to do pottery. Um, and, uh, Jenny and I are both, uh, a part of it. Uh, I'm a elder in the church. I have a PhD. Uh, I have all kinds of, uh, um, fixed credentials. But that group would surely be run by Jenny. Why? Because she's an outstanding potter. People would recognize her gifts. And naturally, she would have a kind of authority over the others that they would willingly grant to her um, in order to fulfill their purpose, that is to learn about pottery. And that goes on all the time. In every relationship that you're in, where there are more than two or three people, Someone is exercising some kind of natural government in that area that everybody else acknowledges, usually based on their gifts and abilities and experience. Um, What formal government is, is when there's a permanent need for the ordering of that group, and thus an artificial superiority is appointed in office because it's ongoing and... uh, there needs to be a, everybody needs to know who to look to with respect to this thing because it's important enough for the life of the group as opposed to these informal governmental orders. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. All right. Um, any other? Oh, let me <laughs> need to finish here. Uh, so lawful use of force. Um, the common sense understanding that uh, no God-given government can command against what God has said, Um, and that we have a crucial role to help hold governments accountable. We're told again and again that we're to pray for God's blessing upon civil government, and uh, yet to warn that uh, government is not for the governor's sake, but it's for the sake of the good of the people. Um, And then he makes a final comment here. There's no form of government set in the scripture, but he notices that in a fallen world where we see power have a corrupting influence, then it makes sense uh, as much as possible to have division of power 
and ways in which the powerful are held yet nevertheless accountable. Uh, and this is the best hope of avoiding tyranny and securing justice. Um, and uh, so you can see the elements that Dr. Packer thinks uh, over uh, historical human experience has led to a commendation of a government, something like the one that we have the privilege to uh, be under. Well, let me stop there and uh, see if anybody has any questions or comments uh, with respect to the family, uh, the world, and the state. Well, all right. Thank you very much again for uh, being present uh, virtually. Um, the uh, We passed a sign in a neighbor's yard uh, talking about the class of 2021 high school lo- locally, and uh, it uh, commended the seniors, and it said that they were virtually unstoppable. I thought that was... Uh, uh, a great um, uh, way of thinking about their experience. And uh, so I think we have been virtually um, unstoppable in our progress through these first three parts of the book. I look forward for us to uh, begin uh, uh, the end in our next meeting. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for um, the understanding that we can have as we seek to live for Christ in this age of these two great institutions, the family and the state, and the uh, right way to understand this fallen world, and yet it being under your care and government and uh, still used of you to be a blessing, uh, both to rebels and to redeem sinners alike. And uh, we pray, Father, that um, we would understand these things well and understanding them be better fit to have a part in our communities as salt and light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.